One way that Jesus has treated his disciples so far in Luke's gospel is preparing them for what they're going to face. It's not that he tells them everything. But one way that he shows care is by giving them some kind of guidance or indication about what's to come. And and even most immediately in Luke 21, he said, look, in the days that are coming, this generation before it passes away, all kinds of tumultuous things you're going to expect. So when there are messianic pretenders and international turmoils and and if, you're, if there's people taking you to the synagogues and, uh, or arresting you from the synagogues and taking you before kings and governors, if you're having to testify and you're being betrayed and you're suffering, some of you they'll put to death. I just don't want any of you to be surprised at what's coming. So one of the ways he's been caring for his disciples is by giving them some guidance about the future. He's not saying, now here's what tomorrow's going to look like. You know, Simon, and here's what tomorrow's going to look like. Andrew, let me break it all down for you. Now that's, that's not the normal Christian life, is it? But some, some expectation of what may lay down the road. And then walking by faith, trusting the Lord and His Spirit. He has also prepared them for some, some mission work that I think is in the background of tonight's passage. I just want to refer to a couple places. In Luke 9, He had earlier sent them out. He had given them authority. He had uh, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal diseases. In Luke 9, 3, here's what he told them. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. Wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So there's this brief uh, instruction that they're not to be, you know, filling all their packs with stuff. Uh, Instead, with the regions they're traveling through, they can count on a kind of hospitality that would be very normal for people traveling around in the ancient world. Uh, The food, the clothing, the lodging, all of this, he says in Luke chapter 9, essentially don't, don't assume that you've got to take all of that with you. Travel around. Preach and proclaim, minister and heal, and and trust that some of this hospitality that you're going to need along the way, it will be available to you. Now, there's another place in Luke 10 where a larger group is set out. Not 12 this time, but the 72. The Lord appointed 72 others in Luke 10, one, and sent them out. And I want you to listen to what he says there. The harvest is plentiful, he tells them. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest... To send out laborers and go your way. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Oh, that's a little disturbing. Lambs among wolves. Things don't tend to go well for lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Carry no money bag. Or I'm rereading that, sorry. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there... Your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. And I take that to mean don't go from house to house looking for better lodging or better food. If a man of peace invites you in, then graciously receive from him and stay there. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's before you, heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Well, in Luke 9 and Luke 10, there's some similarities there. He sends out his folks to uh, first 12 and then many more, 72 in Luke 10. And he sends them out to do what will not just be easy for them. They're going to need supplies. They might not even be fully received by everybody they go to and from town to town or house to house. And so they are to act with discretion. They're to act with discernment. But they are to proclaim the kingdom. They are to preach and to minister. They are to heal and to act in the authority of Christ. Heavy responsibilities, for sure. And at this final Passover for Jesus in Luke 22, we see instructions that remind us of those earlier things And yet these instructions are not quite the same. Do you remember what he told them not to carry? Don't bring this and don't bring that. Leave this behind. He says in verse 35, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? So what's he referring to? Well, what I've just referenced in Luke 9 and Luke 10. When he he asked them, when I sent you out, when did he send them out? Well, earlier as a group of 12 and then among the 72. So Luke 9 and Luke 10 are probably the literary referent point we're to look back to. That's what he's referring back to. And that's his question. And and this is his opening question that's going to contain some instructions about how to prepare. And they read a little differently. This is a a little discourse or a little uh, group of, uh, of teachings after the Last Supper cup and bread statements. He's made several of these statements. In fact, between the cup and bread interpretation and the uh, Gethsemane scene, New Testament scholars have grouped four sayings together. One saying was in verses 21 to 23. It was the saying about a betrayer in their midst. Another saying was in verses 24 to 30, which was about the one who's among them serving that person has embodied the ethics of the kingdom. That's the greatest among them, the one who serves. The third saying is what we saw this morning. The promise of Peter's deliverance and preservation through the sifting that affects not only Peter, but all the disciples. Peter himself will even deny Jesus. But Satan's desire to sift the disciples and Peter's own failure, all of that, part of a third saying. This is the last of the four Post-meal teachings. This is about preparation for coming conflict. And and here's the situation. Luke 9 and 10 were earlier in Jesus' ministry. And I don't just mean chronologically. Obviously, the chapters occur earlier. I just mean, what week are we on with Luke 22? Well, things are coming to a head and very quickly. And I think what Jesus wants his disciples to realize is the stakes and the opposition are not what they were in Luke 9 and Luke 10. They've heated up to a point of volatility. There's a reason why Jesus is going to be condemned at the Sanhedrin and then turned over to the Romans. It's because the hatred and conspiracy against him have risen to a breaking point. Now, it's been building. It builds throughout the Gospels. But but all of what's building reaches this point. And I think there's a threshold where Jesus is helping the disciples to see we're in a place of conflict that's not what it was like in Luke 9 and in Luke 10. And so I want you to reflect with me, you know, you disciples. I want you to answer this question. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? 
And as they reflect on that, however many months or years earlier that was, they do remember, indeed, the Lord provided. Just as Jesus said it would happen, so it happened. Indeed, they say, we lacked nothing. That's their answer, nothing. Did you lack anything? We did not. Now, reliance in the cases of Luke 9 and Luke 10 are going to be offset now to Luke 22, verse 36. Now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Well, what we want to notice immediately is how different these instructions are. And one of the ways to explain the difference here is that, as one writer put it, the tide of popularity is shifting against them and will shift against them. So that when they go out on the mission again, this writer says, they will expect trouble. They will expect perhaps more challenging instances of going from town to town, village to village, and hospitality. And, and I, I, just to peek ahead, just reading the book of Acts, we know that there are challenges in store for the disciples, governing authorities and rulers, things that the apostles are going to have to face. And, and so the welcome and embrace that a lot of people might have easily had toward the disciples earlier on in Jesus' ministry, things are shifting. Things are shifting under them. The disciples have an expectation of conflict, and Jesus is wanting to give that expectation some clarity and some guidance. Let the one who has a money bag and likewise a knapsack. Well, we've heard about those two things before. What do you put in the money bag? Well, it's there in the title, isn't it? Okay, so it's a bag for your money. But then a knapsack, what would go in a knapsack? Well, a knapsack would be a leather pouch. That's essentially what you're to think of. A leather pouch, and it's going to contain items like food uh, or an extra tunic. Earlier on, Jesus has said, don't take two tunics. You know, you don't need to start packing extra clothes and outer garments. You need to worry about being warm in the evening because we're going to provide hospitality. The Spirit will guide you. God will provide for you. And I don't think he's saying that God won't provide for them. It's that one of the ways the Lord will provide for them is their own forethought and their own discernment and discretion. As they travel, the circumstances are different. The circumstances are different. One writer puts it this way, they're no longer going to be traversing in only familiar safe orbits, but even moving into new and foreign territories where there is greater possibility for conflict and hospitality challenges. And, and so we arrive at this place where Jesus adds a reference to a weapon that wasn't referenced in Luke 9 or Luke 10. And this is what has caused all sorts of interesting interpretive considerations. What does he mean by this? Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Should the disciples take this literally? Now, of course, there are two main views to a verse like this. Yes, Jesus means for them to actually buy swords. And if they can't afford one, get, sell their cloak to get money to buy a sword. So they're to take this literally. And then, so we'll consider that interpretation. And then others say, this is part of an overall way of traveling where somebody might say, bring everything with you, everything that you're going to need. And it's a, a way of symbolizing readiness. You should expect difficulty, you should expect trouble, conflict. Uh, so those are the two main views. That Jesus means it literally, or that he means it symbolically. And if that's the case, what could it mean? Now, over the years, um, I've not always held the same view of this verse. Um, I think that there are good arguments for both interpretations. 
My, my leaning as of today, and let the record show and the recording shows, is February 27th, 2022. So as, as of today, I'm going to try to suggest to you that the second option, viewing this as a figurative impulse of being ready, ready for anything, it is, the, is the way that we ought to lean, okay? Now, you know, there are, there are good folks who interpret this differently. Um, what about uh, this first view? The idea of Jesus actually wanting them to carry around swords would be for their protection. Okay? Now, the issue is, uh, is this the right idea for these disciples? Are, are they to be willing to engage in sword combat um, if their lives are at stake in the mission of the gospel? And so this command to buy swords, this might be similar to what's often attributed to Oliver Cromwell, though uh, he likely um, gleaned it from other, other sources as well, so it seems. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. Okay, that's a, that's a famous statement attributed to Oliver Cromwell. And the idea would be here with the disciples, trust the Lord, don't forget your sword. Um, if that's the idea, um, then he's meaning here a literal means of protection. And it could be for their own self-defense against robbers or bandits. It could be a, a, a danger of traveling in territories where there could be wild animals. Like, is, is Jesus basically saying, make sure you go out on mission for me armed? Okay, it's like, that is that what he's telling them to do? And um, there's a systematic theologian who puts it this way. He says, Jesus seems to be encouraging his disciples to have swords for self-defense. Uh, a former leader at a college puts it this way. If Jesus, let me back up for a moment. He said, this is the quote, Jesus told them if they had to sell their coat to buy a sword to do it because he knew danger was coming and he wanted them to defend themselves. As an aside for a moment, I do think you can make an argument for self-defense and the intervention in, in situations that would be right and just for you to uh, vanquish and conquer what is evil, um, whether that be an individual and smaller setting or whether that would be a just war that, uh, that cities and nations could engage in. The question is, even if that case can be made from other texts, is it what this text is saying? That's the issue. So don't take anything from what I'm saying tonight to mean that I don't think a case could be made for those other notions. I, I do think you can make a case for those notions. The issue is, is this verse to be leveraged for that? And, um, and I've seen folks who would be strong advocates for the Second Amendment, for instance, to say one of the reasons we want to be pro-Second Amendment is because Jesus is pro-Second Amendment, and they would cite this text. Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that's not just a closed case there. There might be some real challenges with that. And I would encourage us to not use that verse to make that case, okay? Just to... That's my, own, <laughs> that's my own suggestion. Now, um, if Jesus wants them to actually buy swords, that's one view. But what if, it was, what if it was to be an overall picture of readiness and it would be a symbolic um, use of this sword language? Why would we say that has any merit to it as a view? Well, here's the view I'd want you to consider most. And um, one, of the, one of the problems with the literal view is that Jesus says... If you need to sell your cloak, do so and buy a sword. 
Jesus mentions selling their cloak. Did he actually expect them to get rid of this garment which would keep them warm? They seem to be envisioning here, or he seems to be envisioning for them, greater conflict in the days to come. And in the ancient world, the evenings were truly a danger depending on where you were. And you needed coverings. This would be a problem daily then without good lodging and hospitality. And and so the fact that Jesus is saying sell that, like that's the thing they're to sell? Their outer garment? Some would look at this statement then and say he's engaging in hyperbole. He's saying the conflict is going to be so serious. The trouble is going to be so great that if you had to sell your cloak to buy a sword, you need to do that. But is he actually wanting them to do that? Jesus is not opposed at all to using uh, strong hyperbole and pictures of radical devotion and considerations. I also want you to notice in verse 38, the disciples say, here are two swords. Okay, two swords. And Jesus says, it is enough. Now, hold on. There are 12 disciples. There are Roman soldiers and all sorts of troubles that they seem to be in, uh, in the future going to face. Two swords For what is to be coming, it's not like these people are former soldiers, okay? Um, Now, I'm not saying that in Peter and Andrew and James James and John's, uh, you know, downtime that they didn't engage in swordplay. I'm I'm saying, you know, maybe they did. Let's say they did. Let's say that between casting nets, they were like, we've got these swords, you know, and we enjoy practicing just in case. Um, I, I don't think Jesus' statement here saying it is enough is a way for these disciples to say, given what's to come, we have two swords. He just said, sell your cloak and buy some. They say, well, we've got two. That's enough. That's intriguing. Like that language of why Jesus would end in verse 38 with that. Okay, more on that in a bit. Even the way, well, here's the bit. (laughs) We just reached it. Um, I do want to make another statement about verse 38. It is enough can mean something different from that. That's sufficient. It can mean enough of this. Suggesting perhaps that if Jesus raises something he means to be understood with hyperbole, and they say, hey, we've got swords, he's now cutting off the conversation because they're missing his point. Similar to when Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, and they say, Did you forget the bread? Did you not bring any bread? And Jesus is like, why are you talking about who did or didn't bring bread? I'm not talking about that kind of leaven. So they say, here are two swords. And Jesus can be translated as saying, enough of this. (laughs) Like, just drop it. Which would be bringing an end to a discussion about literal swords. Consider also, what do you see in the book of Acts? Do you see, do you see in any of these occasions, in any of these narratives, with any of the scenes of persecution and arrest and opposition, do you see any of them drawing swords? Or any of them saying, I'm so cold, I, I had to sell my cloak, you know? Or for any, any of the letters, any of the epistles, any of the 21 New Testament letters, any reference to the disciples being glad they had swords to deal with their persecutors. There's actually no evidence that any of these apostles, 
engaged in sword combat in the mission of the gospel. But some have taken in church history these, this language from Jesus to mean that even the spread of the gospel, even through violent means if necessary, is something that Jesus seems to be sanctioning. Friends, I don't think that's what he's sanctioning here. I don't think that's what he's sanctioning. We see no evidence of the disciples in the book of Acts looking back on this episode and treating it literally. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come to bring division. And another way this saying is spoken is in Matthew 10.34. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to not bring peace but a sword. The word sword in Matthew 10.34 is division in Luke 12.49-53. Meaning that the sword is something that symbolizes conflict and division. It doesn't have to be a literal sword. In fact, the word sword can be used in the Gospels as a metaphor, as a symbol for division and separation. In fact, I just want you to know as well that in Luke's Gospel, the word sword appears multiple times before Luke 22. It might be helpful to just notice that in Luke 21, 24, Jesus promises they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Well, to be led captive among all nations under the, under the sword is a way of being conquered, if you will, or overcome by the Roman armies, which would happen before the uh, generation of Jesus' disciples passed away. Back in Luke 2, verse 35, Simeon told Mary in the temple, a sword will pierce your own soul also. Now, there's no, ever, there's no fulfillment in the Gospels of Mary ever being actually hurt with a sword. A sword will pierce your soul, the prophet Simeon said. Why did he use that language? Because of the pain that Mary would experience knowing what Jesus not only would do, but in the very living of those days of his rejection, suffering, and crucifixion. What a painful thing that must have been. And the depths of Mary would be grieved and sorrowful. And I think Simeon is wanting to prepare her for that as well. It's as if a sword has pierced her very soul. Now, there's no mention of a sword in Luke 9, 54 and 55, but some disciples are upset at Jesus being rejected in a region and they call for judgment. They have instincts of wanting to apply physical harm, like, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? They're ready for it. And Jesus rebuked them for that strategy. Guys, that's not a missionary strategy. Calm yourselves. But what about after Luke 22? Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers and captains and officers arrive, the officers of the guard and temple. And the disciples say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Ready to apply a literal meaning to it, right? No metaphor there. In fact, one of them in Luke 24, 50 draws a weapon and strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And Jesus heals the wound and says to those chief priests and officers in Luke 22, 52, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And then in uh, Matthew's parallel, not only is the slicing of the high priest servant ear wrong, but Jesus calls them to put it away. Now, most interpreters, you should know this as well, most interpreters these days who write on the Gospels and who are thinking about this passage, 
The majority position is that Jesus' instruction to get a sword was not meant to be taken literally. But a vivid way of warning them to be prepared. And he's given all kinds of uh, exhortations to that end, like in Luke 21, 34 to 38, of being watchful and wakeful. And all of those are metaphors for being ready, being ready for conflict. You see, the problem is the disciples are just not ready fully for what's coming. And this proves it again in another sense, because when they start taking sword language literally and actually pull one and use one with violence in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus intervenes to stop it and heals the wound of the high priest's servant. And I think for these reasons, and so perhaps even more, but these are at least several considerations of why buying a sword is probably an admonition to be prepared for anything. Because as they would travel, you would want to be prepared. And this is not to be sanctioning them for spreading the gospel through violence. Now, um, if there was a literal application here, surely that with wild animals and other things, it could be a threat to them. Um, perhaps you could say that that would be useful. But I don't think Jesus is saying, as you preach and as you spread the good news of the kingdom, just kill anybody that gets in your way. I don't, I don't think that's the intent here. Now, I think other cases from other passages could be uh, raised for righteous and just overthrow of evil, um, even through weapons and conflict both on individual and larger levels. I just don't think this verse is about that. And so that's the question, right? What is this text about? Not as though or those larger ideas taught elsewhere is the text here about that thing. I don't think that it is. I don't think that it is. I think Jesus wants them to be ready. So I wanted to spend a few minutes um, on that idea that the one who has no sword, let him sell his cloak and buy one. And that taking Jesus literally seems to be what some of the disciples are doing and they say, you know, we've got two swords. We'll, we'll return to that as we get to the end of the verse. But then Jesus says in verse 37, For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what's written about me has its fulfillment. The opening of verse 37 gives a reason. He told them uh, uh, some instructions in verse 36, and then said, For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled. Going and buying a sword or being seen as someone uh, like they are seen in the, in the garden would make them look lawless. And Jesus, Jesus may, be, may be anchoring here in verse 37 a reason, or anchoring the instructions in a reason, that the disciples are going to face conflict and in this coming conflict, be considered opponents of Rome or transgressors or lawless people. And Jesus is saying, I, it has been written about me that I be numbered as one of those. The scripture must be fulfilled in me. Even the must language is worthy of reminding ourselves that Jesus is speaking of a divine plan. These are not things left to chance. It must happen. This scripture must be fulfilled in me. The, the, the sheer brazenness of anybody in the contemporary day of Jesus saying, oh, you know, the Old Testament's about me. These scriptures are about me. They're pointing and being fulfilled in my person and work. What an incredible claim to make. And Jesus is making these claims. That what the Old Testament says in Isaiah 53, he said, must be fulfilled in me. Because that's what he quotes here. 
Isaiah 53, verse 12. The sections of Isaiah 52 and 53 are echoed and alluded to in the Gospels from time to time, but only among the four Gospels is here Isaiah 53 quoted. Isaiah 53 in verse 12 is the last verse of the chapter. In Isaiah 53, there's that famous language where God is speaking about his suffering servant. The one who will be put forward to bear the iniquity of sinners. The one who will bear their transgressions and whose chastisement will bring them peace. This is the chapter about we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's speaking then of a servant who will go to suffer, but who will do so as a substitute. And on him, our iniquities will be. This is not a person who will suffer because of his own sin. This is a person who is going forward to bear the sins of others, not his own. We know that Christ is without sin. There is this promise then of someone who is being put forward as a substitute to bear judgment and punishment on behalf of the sins of others and not his own. And Jesus says, he was numbered with the transgressors. That's what is said of that figure. God says of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 verse 12, he, that figure, was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he was considered someone who had done wrong. That's what it means to be numbered among them. If somebody were to say, all right, can you count all the transgressors in the room? Well, obviously all of us would be counted because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's to say, if you were to number the transgressors and count them all and give a number in the room, Jesus, this is saying, would be numbered among them in the eyes of others. Someone who was looked at as transgressing or lawless. A transgressor had a a specific referent in the eyes of the Jews. You transgressed God's commandments. So while the disciples of Jesus would be viewed as lawbreakers, they were viewed as such because they followed Jesus, who was a blasphemer in the eyes of these Jewish authorities. In fact, even his own exorcisms, they were willing to say maybe he acts in the power of Beelzebul. So not only is he blaspheming, he's in league with the evil one and the kingdom of darkness is at at play in his very ministry. Now, of course, we know as Bible readers, those notions are absurd. But among the transgressors that they would count, he would be numbered among them in their eyes. This is preparing us to understand that Jesus will not be clearly, perfectly perceived by these people committing these things. They have wrongly concluded things of him. They have accused him falsely and will gather false witnesses in bringing about their verdict. A verdict they've already decided ahead of time. They just need the evidence and the witnesses to marshal toward it. And he was numbered with the transgressors. The Bible says that's what's going to be said and and, uh, fulfilled by this one. And Jesus says, it must be fulfilled in me. The disciples will be considered that as well as Jesus, the transgressors. Now, there is a divine wisdom in this as well. While, while Jesus will not have sin of his own, by, by going to the cross, he becomes sin and takes on the curse for us. Here you have a robber on his right. Here you have an insurrectionist on his left. And these two who have committed actual crimes of insurrection, Jesus is numbered among them. There he is in the middle cross. There he is counted among transgressors. You didn't crucify innocent people. You crucified dastardly criminals. 
Those who were willing to go against Rome and, and, and uh, uh, stir up rebellion and lead movements that were willing to call the authority of the powers that be into question. And so those, that's what happened to those transgressors. And there you have on Calvary, on the day of Passover, on the Friday of Passover week, you see Jesus numbered among them. So when, would this, when was this scripture fulfilled? This scripture in verse 37 that he was numbered among them. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Well, Jesus here is already considered a blasphemer and a lawless one by Jewish authorities. I think we can say that this prophecy was not solely and exclusively fulfilled in the cross event, but even in what was leading up to it. Jesus is living out the fulfillment of this verse because there is conspiracy that's being cultivated against him even now. One of his own disciples, Judas, is in league with the Jewish leaders to commit it. One writer puts it this way. The fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy could be seen in the events of the passion as a whole, which picture the sinless Messiah as rejected, mocked, and crucified By his own people. In other words, Jesus is treated as a transgressor. As a criminal. He's arrested as a criminal. Punished as a criminal. Flogged as a criminal. Crucified as a criminal. Numbered among the transgressors. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 37. And then we'll look at our final verse tonight. At the end of verse 37. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Once again, confirming Jesus' view of the Old Testament. It is a story that anticipates what he will come to do. It is language and texts and books and prophecies and a storyline about him. It is written about him and it has its fulfillment. And in fact, it must be fulfilled. The New Testament is the completion of the incomplete story of the Old the old had a designed incompletion to it. So that when we reach the end of the Bible storyline in the Old Testament, there is a sense of dissatisfaction and not an incompletion because of the promise of fulfillment Jesus would bring. So what that has been written and not fulfilled earlier would now reach its fulfillment in Christ. What is written about me. Now Jesus just lays this out. He's going to be numbered among the transgressors. He's talked about scriptural prophecy and cited from Isaiah 53 and in verse 12. What's their response? Look, Lord, here are two swords. This is their response. Look, Lord, here are two swords. In other words, it's as if they did not hear anything in verse 37, talking instead about his last comment in verse 36. The disciples do have these strange transitions of thought about one subject that they can fixate on depending on and despite what else is brought up in the room. We saw this at the Passover meal when Jesus was talking about his body and his blood and then he starts talking about a betrayer. But the disciples don't stick with that subject for very long. They start thinking about what's the greatest in the kingdom. And you think, why are you guys talking about this in light of what he's just said? And after talking about being numbered among the transgressors and scripture being fulfilled, whatever was written is coming to its completion. In verse 38, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he says to them, it is enough. When one scholar says, the last supper of Jesus tragically reveals the gulf 
The gulf that separates Jesus and his disciples. They had carried two swords with them to the upper room during the Last Supper. So they came into the Last Supper, you know, uh, with their swords. And now if they're heading to Gethsemane, which it seems in verse 39, they came and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And this is what's coming. And even if they're uh, beginning already this journey that's very succinctly summarized in verse 39, they're saying, look, Lord, behold, that's the word in verse 38. Behold, you know, every time Jesus says behold, there's something very important that he needs to tell them. This is not an important thing that, ca- that comes after the behold that they give. In verse 38, behold, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he says to them, it is enough. Which could mean that's sufficient. Or, and I think more strongly, actually, he is saying enough of this. There is gender in Greek. There's masculine and feminine and neuter. And the only reason I want you to know this for a point tonight is because the word sword is a feminine noun. And you would expect that any adjectives would match, which is what uh, you see in English and grammar all over the place. If there are certain rules where singularity in, uh, in one is followed by singularity in another or even gender matching with the way language functions. And Jesus' answer is not given in the feminine, but in the neuter. This could suggest, as several scholars have said, Jesus is not saying those swords are enough. He's saying the discussion as a whole, I'm putting an end to this. You, you guys are not listening to where I'm going with my language that is heavy and weighty. So he's not saying the swords are enough. He's saying enough of this. And that ends the conversation. That completes those sayings after the cup and the bread. Friends, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And the disciples should think about being armed in a different sense. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not rush, wrestle against flesh and blood. You see, the devil's coming to them. He's seeking to sift them. Good luck looking at your two swords for that spiritual warfare. He says, therefore, in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Let's pray.